so uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you all for coming out for this, uh, the second lecture in a series of six, the Gifford Lectures. Uh, my name's uh, Duncan Pritchard. I'm a professor of philosophy here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm also on the, uh, the Gifford Committee. And I'm delighted to be welcoming tonight uh, Lord Rowan Williams of Oystermouth. Uh, the lecture series as a whole uh, is entitled Making Representations, Religious Faith and the Habits of Language. And the title of tonight's lecture is Can We Say What We Like? Language, Freedom and Determinism. So if, if you could all join me in welcoming Lord Williams. Thank you very much, and um, thank you for being here again. It's a <laughs> pleasant surprise. Now, last night, we were thinking a little bit about those aspects of our habits of language which might seem to bring us to the edge of what we can tidily or descriptively say and nudge us into the question of whether we need some other register than the purely descriptive. That's what I referred to as the representational, that which doesn't seek simply to imitate or reproduce, but to allow the life of what's being talked about to live in another mode, another way. And I listed those aspects of our habits of speech that I intended to reflect on. And the first of these had to do with the way in which we are bound, it seems, to think of language as something other than just a stimulus and response system. Speaking is a material phenomenon, as I noted yesterday. It's something we do with our bodies. It's a form of physical behavior. And there have been those who've not shrunk from the conclusion that therefore it's no less determined than any other form of physical behavior. In the last analysis, they'd say we have no choice about what we say. Our vocal cords obey the same inexorable physical laws as the rest of our organism. And that doesn't, of course, mean that what we say necessarily mirrors what the constraints that cause it to happen are actually like. Why, after all, should the noises we make show anything at all? The most we could say would be that a comprehensive study of causal factors and noises made would presumably display certain correlations. Such and such a sequence of noises would coincide with such and such a sequence of stimuli. But we'd have no ground for supposing that the noises were anything but a rough guide for identifying the stimuli at work. And indeed, such a correlation with the relevant stimuli might very well tell us that the noises being made consistently presented or suggested a state of affairs quite different from what was actually the case. Ah but there's the catch. A determinist theory of human utterance has to be expressed in words. And this amounts to saying that one group of noises is and one group of noises isn't reflective of what processes outside the self are like. The noises by which we purport to construct a comprehensive picture of causal necessity are saved from the bonfire which consumes the claim of all other utterances to show a state of affairs truthfully. Whereas in strict consistency, these noises, determinist noises, would be as susceptible as any others to an analysis correlating them with causal factors beyond themselves. It's the Cretan paradox, again, the Cretan who says all Cretans are liars. And if it's true that all my utterances are determined in a way that denies any connection between what I say and what is the case, 
at least one utterance must also be truthful. All my utterances are determined. And any supportive arguments for the truth of that utterance must likewise be exempted from the overall disconnection if the claim isn't to be completely arbitrary. To give reasons for believing determinism is to undermine determinism. To articulate the evidence is to relativize it, because to assume that the noises I make in defending determinism have the property of causing you to believe it, or even disposing you to believe it, is manifestly unfounded and dangerously near to being a flat contradiction of the warning not to assume that a state of belief can be caused by anything except a set of immediate physical causes. Now, all that is familiar enough as a reply to determinist theories. But there is a further aspect to its internal problems. In principle, you might claim, and everybody knows that in principle is a bit of a get-out-of-jail card in this context, in principle, it ought to be possible to predict someone else's utterances at a specific point in time, if you knew all the factors. But as soon as you've said this, the other person in question will be made aware of that action or utterance as a possible future course of action, and to be aware of a possible future course of action is also necessarily to entertain the possibility of other courses of action. To spell this out, if I say to you, your next utterance will be, now I see that determinism is true, you're bound to be conscious of the possibility of not saying it. It's a possible future course of events, because that's what future events are like. So you can't articulate a prediction like that without rendering it uncertain. And it doesn't greatly help, of course, that the act of predicting any particular outcome will itself be determined and can't therefore be relied on as a truthful prediction. If I say, your next utterance will be, now I see that determinism is true, you are perfectly free to reply. You're only saying that because you have to. <laughs> now, in his brilliant and influential work, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, Richard Rorty argued a very strong case for distinguishing between the, as he saw it, unavoidably determinist account we have to give of physical causality, and the radically undetermined possibilities of meaning. So that a determinist picture of the actual history of linguistic activity would not be helpful or relevant to the history of meaning. So he writes, even if we could predict the sounds made by the community of scientific inquirers of the year 4000, we should not yet be in a position to join in their conversation. It is not, he insists, that there's actually something about human beings that allows them the internal liberty of deciding what they mean or what they're going to say. The ontology he assumes means that, I quote, some atoms on the void account of microprocesses within individual human beings will permit the prediction of every sound and inscription which will ever be uttered but it's simply that we shall go on using the language of deciding or inventing, knowing what we mean by it. The point is that the difference between, I'm quoting again, the difference between a language suitable for coping with neurons and one suitable for coping with people. That's what matters essentially here, not any kind of real ontological divide. That, of course, doesn't really spring us from the trap. To say that I have the sense of deciding, when in fact I don't, is something different from saying that I decide. 
I know the difference in normal speech between these two things. And I can say in retrospect, perhaps in therapy, that while I thought I was deciding, it's now clear to me that I wasn't, that I was acting under compulsions I didn't understand. And if Rorty is correct, I should have to be perpetually in a state in which this kind of discrimination wouldn't be open to me, that distinction between deciding and thinking I'm deciding. But more seriously, I should also have solid grounds for suspecting anyone else's claim to be deciding about their speech or actions. The respect I'd be bound to give to someone else's account of their reasons for doing something or of their needs and priorities would have to be a wholly arbitrary choice, perhaps a self-interested one, if I want my account of such things to be taken seriously. But if I'm not in a position where I need that kind of reciprocal recognition, where I have clearly defined power over another individual or group, how is there any ground for according respect to someone else's self-description? How can the liberal polity and culture Rorty commends be rationally derived from his basic position? And I think that morally unsettling implication of Rorty's scheme hasn't had as much discussion as perhaps it needs. The implication that if my claim to be deciding is actually as a matter of fact, arbitrary, then another's claim to be deciding or thinking is likewise vulnerable. I think there is a problem about power, a problem about manipulation, a problem about respect buried in all that. This is not simply this theory about how I perceive my own actions. It's about how I read and respond to the actions of others. It's not just about inhabiting my own determined identity with the playful irony that Rorty so eloquently commends. It's a potential ground for refusing other people's account of what they're doing, and as such a position with morally worrying implications, so much so that we might well be driven back to probing with extra care the cogency of the underlying philosophical model. The problem is perhaps, as a critic like Roy Baskar has noted with Rorty, that Rorty is seeking to hold together a completely exhaustive and exact realism at one level, all physical processes are determined and predictable, with a radical voluntarism on the other. We create the meanings and definitions we choose. Freedom is the ability we sense in ourselves to redescribe anything and everything, and this is the only form of power over the world that we can have, so Rorty claims. But what we're not helped to see in this scheme is how we make a difference to the material circumstances we find ourselves in, our purpose of interaction with the environment, our restless adjustments of social relationship and power in the light of visions of things like justice. In a way that is, as Roy Basker points out, quite at odds with his ambitious celebration of the human capacity constantly to reinvent what we can say or imagine, Rorty seems to be assuming that we live within a set of determined constraints that can't be materially affected by our liberty to say what we like. And we might press a little further, noting a point that Baskar doesn't actually take up. If we do live in a world of physically determined events, the neural activity that underlies not only our speech, but the representation to ourselves of what we say, our imagining and planning must also be determinate. Otherwise, we've simply introduced into the material system a set of uncaused phenomena, 
the neural firings that give us the illusion of meaning something by what we say. Which means that a thoroughgoing determinist picture will finally demand more than Rorty himself is prepared to concede. If a liberty of imagining is granted, it must in the last analysis be as illusory as any other liberty. Rorty, I think, has been seduced by the strong inherited mythology of the divide between material fact and mental interpretation, hard and soft kinds of talking about phenomena. But physicalist determinism is undoubtedly more of a universal acid than this allows. Sooner or later, every soft variety of speech is going to be eaten up. Well, I'll be revisiting some aspects of Roy Basker's argument later on. But now I'd just like to conclude this part of the argument by noting that whatever we want to say about language as undetermined, our speech is in some sense free, has to avoid the confusion and the possible self-contradiction built into Rorty-style dualism. The idea that we are free to give what account of reality we choose, that there's no difference between telling a story and reflecting the world, in um, Rorty's terms, fails to deal with the actual constraints that speech works with. In plain terms, this version gives little or no account of the experience of difficulty in what we say. The element of struggle that's involved in working on language so that it's purged of idleness, self-indulgence, self-referentiality, superstition, however defined, and so on, and becomes an increasingly sustainable tool for common reflection and common labor. In very plain terms, if we can say what we like, why does anybody ever find it difficult to say what they want? The fact that we work on our words in such a way that we come to trust one another, to be confident that what we are talking about is what another speaker is talking about so that we can negotiate shared activities, this tells very seriously against the idea that describing things as we please could be a constitutive strategy for our language. We shall always have learned how to identify and describe. And if we then go on to revise what we have learned, it's because the world of common action, including shared speech about the object, reveals, over the passage of time, various lacunae or tangles of sense that need work. The Hegelian pattern of positing, critiquing, and refunding what we say about anything at all is a far more fruitful and faithful version of how we speak than any mythology of a single creative speaker reinventing his or her world as he or she chooses. We continue to learn, and part of fully setting out the meaning of a description may in many cases be a matter of setting out how we have learned to use the language we now use. After all, scientific narrative is a central feature of scientific justification. How do you know that? Because the following procedures of investigation have been followed. And of course, at the other end of the spectrum, the fascination of examining the notebooks of a poet or a novelist is the opportunity to see how a writer learns something, moves away from initial statements in response to a usually invisible, imagined partner in speech. There is always a struggle to make what we say both recognizable and defensible. 
Speech that aims at truthfulness is speech that invites responsive testing to establish if it is really recognizable. And it's quite difficult to make sure that you speak recognizably, as any lecturer will confirm. But, and here's the salience of Rorty's picture, we do know that what we say is not actually dictated by what is simply there. We know that what I've been calling description is constantly edging towards more ambitious versions of utterance, towards what I'm calling representation, the rebirth of what is given in another context of meaning or another medium of showing. Now, a representation that contradicts or wholly ignores the history of how that relevant description has been learned is obviously problematic. We could do worse in our attempts to capture what is claimed for relations of truth or reference than appeal to this as a touchstone. Does what is said make it impossible to go on telling this particular story of how, as a matter of fact, we came to say this rather than that about an object? Yet there is another history of learning, one in which we're repeatedly challenged to configure more comprehensively, more connectedly, the specific impressions that have been identified as elements of description, moving us on towards a new dimension in speaking. So that what we say is no longer an attempt, if it ever was, at reproducing a catalogue of juxtaposed elements. We remember from last night Max Black's set of facts. But ascribing to what we're talking about something like a coherent life with continuity over time and interweaving with other lives. Our speech declares its distance from simple reproductive listing, listing. What we can say is more than what we might be obliged to say in creating a formal picture of a set of elements. I'm not, of course, talking about some kind of narrative of consciousness that begins with bare sense impressions or whatever and then moves to abstraction and talk about essences. As last night's discussion, I hope, suggested, the origins of language seem to lie in a more dialectical to and fro between left and right brain functionality. It might be better to say not as soon as we start to speak of reproductive discourse, but as soon as we're reflectively aware of the diversity between two kinds of function and register. The important point is that what we're doing when we speak we, is something which requires us to notice the interplay between different registers. And I don't find it helpful to characterize this as Rorty does in terms of normal and abnormal speech. That's a question begging locution if ever was. But he is right in highlighting the fundamental fact that we habitually use language in a way not demonstrably tied to what is in front of us. And using language this way complicates what we have to say about truth in certain important respects. What we say is, to state the obvious, an action we perform. Cataloguing elements of perception, describing, is a particular stage of that responsive action. Imagining the schemata in which that description fits is a further stage, if we're concerned not only to register what is perceived, but to engage with it, to find our way around it, so to speak, even to discern the patterns of its own activity in such a way as to cooperate with, modify, or divert those patterns. We need linguistic and conceptual tools that allow us to see a continuing identity over time in what confronts us, 
and a schematic consistency in clusters of phenomena. Refining these tools is a matter of learning, trying out schemata, exposing them to be tested, and that testing is not only in terms of practical success, but also and inseparably in terms of recognizability in the exchange of speech with other speakers, what we colloquially and significantly call making sense to each other. And that is an area of some uncertainty or risk. We're not always in a position just to point to an agreed set of atomized phenomena and say, there are the facts. Notoriously, cultures or natural languages divide up the perceived world rather differently. As is well known, it's quite hard to establish exact translations for certain color words. And some cultures have immensely sophisticated classification schemes for, say, diversities of weather or terrain, and extremely limited taxonomies for animals. It's not hard to think of languages that give you one word for hamster and bloodhound, and 17 words for rain. The sheer fact of the diversity of natural languages already alerts us to the undetermined or underdetermined character of the relation of observed phenomena to representation. It seems that to understand how language works, we have to understand its riskiness, its unstable connection with what it engages with. Notice that I'm not talking about the relation of language with something called the world. Once again, this begs a question. Assuming that there is somewhere a straightforward catalogue of neutral phenomena called the world to be isolated as what's basically out to there, and that anything else is what we choose to say, or at best what we vaguely and intuitively add to the iron rations of description. As we've already seen, I hope, in this lecture, that distinction won't really work. And the instability, the uncertain fit of what we say to the environment we inhabit and with which we negotiate isn't a mark of its arbitrariness. We test our schemata, we criticize and enlarge and rework our structures of representation, transforming both our relationships with each other and our capacity to negotiate with the environment. We claim to move from, le from less to more adequate representation not only, as some would like to think, from one imaginative experiment to another. There is a process of difficulty that we encounter, a difficulty which tests what we say and makes a difference to it. And once this instability has been identified, we have to think through some implications. What we say is capable of being not only a representation, but a misrepresentation. The elements of description may be assembled in ways that bear no relation to what has actually been encountered or engaged. Now, we noted last night that in the Ice Age image of the lion man, we see displayed not only a capacity to render an accurate reproduction of the features of a lion and a human being, but also the ability to disaggregate those features and recombine some of them to suggest a fusion of the overall quality or essence of both kinds of life involved. And that is a representation, if you like, that corresponds to nothing that is actually there as a single object in the environment, on the fairly safe assumption that lion men were in as short supply in the Ice Age as they are now. Yet that representation, 
made sense to those who saw and handled such images. We can, in word or artifact, reorder what is given. Speech can, to put it in the most dramatic way, rebel against any attempt to install a tyranny of description. Quite a few years ago, George Steiner discussed this question in a classical passage of his After Babel book, where he looks at problems around reference, truth, and translation, and notes that quite a lot of modern accounts of truth don't really provide any very helpful insights on the question of falsehood, saying what is not so. And Steiner very boldly claims that this question is actually fundamental for an adequate theory of what makes human language what it is. I believe, writes Steiner, that the question of the nature and history of falsity is of crucial importance to an understanding of language and of culture. Falsity is not, except in the most formal or internally systematic sense, a mere miscorrespondence with a fact. It is itself an active creative agent. The human capacity to utter falsehood, to lie, to negate what is the case, stands at the heart of speech and of the reciprocities between words and world. We are a mammal who can bear false witness. Wonderfully Steinerian epigram. I'm uh, excising here an excursus on lying. Really. <laughs> Though I think a close philosophical reading of what lying means is a very significant part of trying to think through what we're saying about representing in speech. But if Steiner is right, language is from the very beginning capable of such use because it makes, it presents us with choices about how we make representations, even about how we describe, in fact. And once we're conscious of choices, you remember I touched on this a little earlier, we're conscious of what is not to be said, and so of the space in which alternative discourses could be generated, whether in the relatively unproblematic shape of a metaphorical rendering, not literally true, or in sheer counterfactual assertion, lying. And counterfactual assertion may be intended to deceive, but may equally be meant simply to provoke new possibilities into life. On any account, this unstable, non-guaranteeable relationship between what is said and the environment in which it is said moves us away from anything like a wholly dependable and straightforward relationship between what is given and what is said, if we're thinking about the fundamental character of speech. Another way of putting all this is one that was developed by the American novelist Walker Percy in some of his essays of the 40s and 50s of the last century. Speech, says Percy, is not one pole of a, as he calls it, a dyadic relationship, a simple cause and effect doublet. In several of his essays, Percy builds on the way in which C.S. Pierce, one of the major figures of American pragmatic philosophy, elaborates the distinction between dyadic and triadic relations, two-term and three-term relations. Dyadic relations are those between forces or agencies, interactions between different elements in an environment. As Percy says, this can be rendered in more contemporary terms as energy exchanges, 
subatomic particles colliding, chemical reactions, actions of force fields on bodies, physical and chemical transactions across biological membranes, neuron discharges, etc. In this world, certain phenomena may be indices of other phenomena. If this phenomenon is perceived, we conclude to that. If smoke, then fire. And so in human behavior, some of the sounds we make are indices. A man has toothache and groans. But another person says, ouch. And another person says, my tooth hurts. It may be unexceptionable, says Percy, to say that all these three people emitted responses. The first, a wired-in response, the groan. The second and third, ouch, my tooth hurts, learned responses. But what is it that distinguishes the learned responses from the wired-in ones? For that one needs something more than an energy exchange model. To treat language as susceptible only to two-term dyadic analysis is not to have a science of language at all. And so, says Percy, what's at issue is the difference between the index and the symbol. The person with toothache groaning provides an index, but the person who says, my tooth hurts, has stepped into the symbolic frame. And symbolizing is a three-term relation between language user, object, and symbol, with the symbol as an element that is not naturally like what it refers to. A symbol, writes Percy, must be unlike what it symbolizes in order that it may be transformed and become what it symbolizes. Thus a word takes on the feel, the associations of what it points to, even though it's not a thing lying to hand that we use to symbolize another thing because it intrinsically reminds us of that other thing. An utterance in a natural language establishes a world, which is importantly different, Percy argues, from an environment. A world, in his sense, is a scheme of sentences proposing a coherent set of relations which may be actual or fictive, present, past, or future. And which of these it is gets settled by a complex process taking place in a community of speakers. What we can be sure of is that it can't be settled by an account of linguistic behavior treating it as just a series of responses to stimuli. We noted earlier that the form of an utterance in itself can't tell us what is the case. The relation between the noises we make and any states of affairs in our environment is anything but straightforward. And the very idea of a representation, or even a description, of states of affairs by way of noises highlights the point about fundamental unlikenesses between what is represented and the symbolic medium of representation. So we can describe an environment as a system of energy exchanges but a world, in Percy's sense, requires something more. In the two-term system of energy exchange, the same stimulus will produce the same response. But that doesn't actually work for language, either in terms of the relation between object and utterance or in terms of the relation between utterance and hearer. Percy observes that the sentence, I need you, can provoke a very wide range of responses, depending on the world in which it occurs. And as he goes on to argue, there are normative dimensions to sentences which go well beyond a simple true or false polarity. The same words may be spoken as literal, as metaphor, as trite metaphor, or fresh metaphor, 
as significant or banal, appropriate or inappropriate. The plain binary scheme of truth and falsehood may reflect very little of what's involved in speaking truthfully or adequately. And once we start asking what is meant by a mistake, we realize that we're again well beyond any stimulus response pattern. Percy neatly describes the Freudian slip as a dyadic interruption, sorry, a dyadic eruption of unconscious forces into triadic behavior. And so not a mistake in any interesting sense. A mistake may be any one of a broad spectrum of missed connections, faulty readings of what was imagined to be a shared world but turns out not to be, clashes of register or tone, and so on. But the fundamental point in all this is that the same words do not necessarily carry the same meaning. Their location in a particular world, in Walker Percy's sense, will tell you how they work. And once you have grasped that point, the notion that our speech is a case of stimulus and response determined by its environment won't really wash. Now, Percy's treatment of these issues is often very compressed and rather tangled, and it's clear that it reflects just the process that he's trying to set out, that is, the repeated struggle to chart the territory of what's perceived from one angle after another, with no final statement possible. It's also attracted its share of criticism from professional philosophers. Thomas Nagel wrote a very critical response to some of Percy's essays on this matter. Yet, I think that Percy's work remains one of the more suggestive and surprisingly neglected sets of meditations on language in the last half century or so. And I'll touch on some of his arguments again in the next lecture when we look more closely at the material nature of what we say. But what he contributes to the specific point of this lecture is the insistence that what we earlier called the instability of the relation between language behavior and the described environment is at the center of how we think about linguistic behavior itself. Conventional semiotics alone, that is the analysis of signs as if they were indices of invariable connections, won't give us a proper theory of language. And Percy claims conventional semiotics is blinkered by its nervousness about metaphysics. Look at how symbolization actually works, and you're up against two difficult, unavoidable questions. How can one thing be or live in another? And what exactly is the role of communities of speakers at any one time in establishing meaning? Participation and intersubjectivity are real metaphysical issues. It may feel a lot easier not to have to deal with them, but not to deal with them is to abandon all hope of an adequate account of what we do when we speak. Percy enumerates a variety of theories that seek to avoid this dimension, including those that see identification between word and thing as wrong, that is, a mistake. The irony, he says, is the very idea of a mistake presupposes just that intentional character in language, the proposing of an assertion for scrutiny and agreement or disagreement that such a theory denies. Percy talks about an antinomy in the scientific study of language. On a stimulus and response view of speech, 
the assumptions that have to be made by a practicing scientist in order to practice intelligently conflict with the framework in which all too often explanation is permitted. And his catalogue of the typical practices of science reminds us of a point touched on earlier. Puzzling over discrepancies, a phrase that Percy associates with the activity of science, puzzling over discrepancies means that the investigator is confronting what's difficult. The scientist moves forward by identifying what is difficult, what doesn't fit in an existing framework. But what account of difficulty, as I asked earlier, could be given in a purely dyadic, a purely stimulus and response model of language? And we don't have to go to the laboratory to find instances of this. Any serious interpersonal exchange involves moments when we struggle for words, when emotion of one kind or another leaves us baffled and inarticulate, when we can't, without a sense of dishonesty, reproduce what we have said or heard in other circumstances apparently similar. Cordelia's embarrassment at her father's demand for protestations of love at the beginning of King Lear is painfully recognizable. And the deliberately invited difficulty of poetry, the conscious complicating of what has to be said by imposing requirements of meter or rhyme or metaphorical patterning, is no more and no less than the extrapolation of this hesitancy, this reluctance to tie up a situation in words too quickly or glibly. More of this in the fifth lecture. But it's this hesitation, this embarrassment, that in some circumstances is the only thing that can reveal or at least suggest truth. It sounds odd and rather provocative to say it, but you might sum up the burden of this lecture by saying that we understand language properly only when we understand lying and embarrassment. Stanley Cavell's justly famous essay on King Lear notes that Cordelia's response to her father exposes Lear's, quote, terror of being loved, of needing love. And Cavell's discussion of this leads him to that central insight in his philosophical reading of Shakespeare, the insight that Lear and other dramas put the question, I quote, put the question of how acknowledgement is to be expressed, that is, how we are to put ourselves in another's presence. Drama, both comedy and tragedy in completely diverse ways, drama makes us present to the other's absolute difference. I can't intervene in drama as a spectator, and so I'm brought face to face with what I don't want to grasp or apprehend, my own limits as they border on the limits of agents who are absolutely, inaccessibly other. And I discover solidarity in encountering this difference, says Cavell, we are, as spectators of the drama, I quote, we are put back in touch with nature, or even with being, I would say, if I knew how. A very Stanley Cavell remark. Difficulty works at several levels. Cordelia's inarticulacy reveals what Lear does not want revealed. What is the case is shown not by description, but by the most paradoxical kind of representation the spectacle of someone stammering and at a loss. 
That is what shows the truth of the relationship about Leo and Cordelia. But that difficulty enacted on the stage becomes another kind of difficulty. I, as a spectator, can say nothing. I must look at the other on stage as the extreme instance of human otherness, someone who speaks but not to me, someone to whom I cannot speak. And so I too have revealed to me what I might prefer to be hidden, something about the limits of my own capacity and the authority of the other. Puzzling over discrepancies, it's not just a matter of recognizing that a problem is a bit more intractable than I thought at first, and that the answer is further away. It is confronting some kinds of intractable difficulties about what can be said, and acknowledging that this confrontation may uncover things we didn't know or didn't choose to know. And to return for a moment to poetry and drama, what the poet seeks to do is something quite close to provoking a crisis in the language she is using, or the linguistic situation she is setting out, so that a new perception is pushed into being. By stepping up the pressure on what can be said, by deliberately generating puzzlement, the poet aims to generate some kind of discovery, a discovery of nature, or even being, as Cavell says, or says he can't say. Back to the point touched on in the first lecture, about the uses of paradox and verbal tension in traditions of meditation, as in Buddhism. So a theory of language that declines to make room for these sorts of difficulty will remain unhelpfully static. Whether we're talking about the practices of experimental science or the practices of managing and understanding the setback of verbal performance in the ways I've discussed, what seems to come through is a picture of truth-telling that's a great deal broader than the manifestation of what is the case by sets of adequately descriptive words, and which assumes that speech moves into its subject matter over time and through a variety of invited and uninvited pressures. We're looking at practices of handling frustration and bafflement, and sometimes practices of deliberately inviting frustration and bafflement. And yet to speak in these terms about speech is also to affirm the freedom of our speaking in a way that's both metaphysically and morally significant. The instability of the word-fact relation, to use an unhelpfully crude terminology, allows us to think in terms of a speaking agent who is for certain purposes able to move out from the nexus of stimulus and response and to create afresh in an alien medium the life of what's perceived. And because that capacity to create a representation by bringing a new difference into being is only intelligible as an act that I own and plan, even if I don't wholly control it, there is an ethical default setting in our exchange of words, which prompts me to regard as a matter of course the other's speaking as something I must treat as other as making certain demands and having a certain hinterland. The person I speak with must be assumed to own their words as I do mine. Even a theoretical assumption that I can own my analytic take on the speech of another in a way they do not own their words, that I can understand them as they don't understand themselves, is an irony too far for moral comfort. 
So, to say that language is characterized by freedom turns out to be quite a complicated matter. It's not a license to say whatever we like. As we'll see in later lectures, the sheer inescapability of making interpersonal sense makes this impossible from the start. When I use a word, it means what I choose it to mean. What matters is who is to be master, in the words of that celebrated linguistic philosopher Humpty Dumpty. But that's not how conversations unfold. If I arbitrarily decide on the meaning of a word which is not the meaning you accord to it, we can't talk. Very obvious. But it's also important to recognize the ways in which difficulty works. The uncovering of truth by acknowledging what it means to struggle for words in various contexts. Perhaps paradoxically, it is that sense of difficulty that most clearly underlines what language's freedom means. To struggle, to test and reject and revise, is to experience language as a project that requires intelligent discernment, choice and action. Language can't be left to the realm of fixed and predictable responses to the environment. It creates a world, and so entails a constant losing and rediscovering of what's encountered. The connectedness of language to what is not language is a shifting pattern of correlation, not an index-like relation of cause and effect. We can't easily imagine human speaking without the risk of metaphor without the possibility of error and misprision, without the possibility of fiction, whether simple lying or cooperative fantasy. In other words, the human speaker characteristically takes the world as itself a project. The environment is there not as a fixed object for describing and manipulating, but as a tantalizing set of invitations, material that is offered for reworking and enlarging. The intelligibility of the environment is not simply in the fact that it can be reduced to this or that pattern of causal sequence, but in its capacity to generate fresh schemata and fresh ways of expressing one identity through another. And accordingly, our own intelligence manifests not only as the capacity to chart or map, but as the ability to absorb the life of what is encountered at a level that makes it possible both to recognize and to represent that life in another form. As speakers, we make things other than themselves. So far from constructing a definitively demarcated territory, a sort of Versailles treaty version of the matter of our discourse, we're constantly redrawing boundaries, or rather perhaps introducing migrants into different territories and making them speak new dialects and wear new clothes. The unceasing effort to rework perceptions as our means of exploring what it is for something to be there for us is both free, in the sense that it's never accounted for by a simple energy exchange model, and deeply constrained, in the sense that we're always trying to allow what is there to show itself, an ethical, not only an epistemological point, as it requires a systematic questioning of our own starting point, our own interest, and the possible distortions that come with that. Mistakes, the capacity to recognize and build on mistakes, fictions and projections, all these tell us more about language than any dyadic two-term interpretation. 
Our sense of what is distinctively human is, it seems, bound up with our ability to be wrong or even untruthful in our representing of the environment. We can't overstate this. An animal may experience faulty recognition of some phenomenon, the fish thinking that the angler's bait is a minnow, and may act so as to mislead another animal, the mother bird dragging her wing as if injured to draw a predator away from her nest. But animals do not make representations of their environment that may be more or less adequate. The misrecognition of some feature of the environment is, in Percy's terms, a dyadic affair, a case of two or more similar causal prompts producing confusion, potentially leading to an inappropriate response. Now, inducing such confusion or misreading by feigning a state of affairs, the bird pretending that it's wounded, is tantalizingly close to what we might call a linguistic fiction, but doesn't involve symbolizing just a manipulating of indices. We're distinct from other animals not so much in the sheer development of our communication skills, but in the fact that these skills include, disturbingly, the ability to miscommunicate, to cut links with the environment, and to scrutinize the nature of those links and repeatedly reimagine them. Human evolution has thus produced what is often called, usually in a rather minimizing spirit, a feedback capacity, a reflexive dimension, which means that it has developed a capacity to stand apart from the material causal nexus to the extent that it can represent itself, including its location in the material causal nexus. As Walker Percy repeatedly insists, a theory of language that doesn't reckon with the phenomenon of our awareness of this standing apart is not a theory of language at all. Even if we say that the sense of being aware is illusory, we're using language drawn from the realm of language and consciousness to deny language and consciousness. There's no escape from this particular dead end. But if we do indeed have to come to terms with the awareness of our location, we also have to reckon with the fact that the way we learn and represent what we have learned is by working with various schemata that don't map neatly onto each other and by projecting structures of representation which allow diverse aspects of what is encountered to emerge into view. We learn and represent our learning, in other words, in a mode that assumes we have no single final perspective on what's encountered, there's always more to say, and in a mode that also assumes that what we say itself alters what we say next, so that the deposit of one essay and representation affects and hopefully enlarges what we go on to say. At one end of the learning-knowing relation stands an object which is constantly being uncovered at different levels or in different perspectives, as if there is in principle no end to the ways in which it can be understood and represented. At the other is a subject which is constantly involved in drawing out the life of what is represented by more and more initiatives in reading the object through one medium after another. In short, at both ends, object and subject, we have an indeterminate horizon. The object is not going to be exhausted by the multiple representations that keep on being generated. The subject is not to be constrained by the limits of description or reflection. We could say that the object is consistently proposing more than any one account of itself will capture. 
even metaphorically, that it continues to give itself for new kinds of knowing. It is there as an irreducible other, never to be finally absorbed into the knower's version of things. And likewise, the subject is continuously capable of responding to this otherness by connecting diverse parts of the field of environmental stimulus into new schemata. And this analogical process or nexus which subject and object inhabit is one in which the world is known in ways that are both fluid, because there's no final vantage point, no final representation, and accountable to what is given. Because simply, once again, the working through of analogical speech is difficult. In the context of the overall argument of these lectures, what's important is that the freedom of language requires an anthropology, a picture of what is distinctively human in terms of receptiveness to a set of signals from the environment that don't allow of a final, ideally complete reading. To go back just one more time to Walker Percy, the problem with both physical and cultural anthropology, he says, is that they have everything except an anthropology. They offer an account of culture without raising the question of what it is in the human constitution that makes culture possible, that gives us some purchase on assertory behavior, the human habit of claiming to remake the environment by naming and representing. If we hold on to the two poles of indeterminacy I mentioned in the subject and the object, we imply that what is given to us to understand in our environment is not simply a set of intelligible formulae to provide a grid for explanation. It's a complex of actual and potential life, of structures that breed not only complexity, but different levels of unity. The formulae claimed as basic, the essential numbers or ratios in the universe about which so much has been so well written in recent years, inexorably produce clusters of data not reducible in their joint properties to the properties of their constituents. And when we as speakers get hold of them, we reorganize them in patterns and schemes that allow them to live in other media, including the unlikely medium of noises made by human mouths and larynxes. What we call understanding moves down to the level of basic ratios, the level of mathematics. It equally moves up to the various analogical representations that are sparked into life made possible by the phenomena before us. And the challenge to any reductive doctrine of humanity and its knowing for the idea that there must be only one significant level of explanation is in this potential for mathematical relations to generate not just the complexity of living organisms, not just the bewildering feedback capacity of the brain, but also the power of speech to cut loose from what is given and recombine the data in ever more resourceful and surprising patterns. If I'm right in arguing that what I've defined as representation, the practice of transporting kinds of perceived life across the territorial boundaries of initial strict description, is the crucial distinctive ability of the linguistic animal, the final ontological question is how we do justice to the being that produces such ability. We'll be coming back to the whole issue of what it means to think in terms of a world in which we cannot apparently talk about the relations of fundamental causal agencies in our biology without shamelessly borrowing linguistic terminology, information, coding, and so on. It's obvious, for example, that to identify something as a coded message, 
implies that there is a receptor able to decipher it. The unity of a particular string of DNA as a code depends on what is there to recognize it. Codes don't simply exist in a vacuum. They don't have an independent identity as a unit apart from what receives and decodes them. But if we apply the same principle to whatever it is in the life of the objects of our speech that enables the upward spiral of, part spiral of partnership with language so as to produce new representation, apparently without any final state of adequacy, something of the same point emerges. There are dimensions in what we encounter that require recognition in the imaginative world of our speaking. The life of what we encounter is a many-layered complex of invitations to that imagining. Strict argument won't take us much further, <clears throat> but this is one of those points where the questions generated by our linguistic life do reach out in the direction of certain themes in theology. And I will trail my theological coat very briefly in the last few minutes. The notion of an unbounded creative intelligence has regularly been associated with the idea that the elements of the universe we know are crystallizations of the unbounded intelligence perceiving the innumerable ways in which its own life may be reflected in bounded form. God's knowledge is the cause of things, is a familiar Thomist phrase. I'll have a little bit more to say on it in the fourth of these lectures. And that the unbounded intelligence is able to condense aspects of its own unified life into an abundance of specific forms, specific limited structures, is the rationale of there being anything at all in this metaphysical framework. There is anything because infinite intelligence is able to confine itself in limited intelligible clusters. But since each limited structure is inseparable from the limitless life that brings it into being, that structure is always going to resist final capture in terms of some basic explanation. There will always be more to be said about it because the life it crystallizes is a life that is not in itself bounded. There will always be relations between it and other presences in the finite universe that need to be uncovered and represented. And to make sense of the idea of a life that unceasingly generates more and more levels of representability, more and more to be imagined and spoken, needs some opening out onto the horizon of what we could call intelligible abundance, an inexhaustible life which is itself unboundedly open to diversity of representation and at the same time supremely resistant to representation. The great medieval mystic, Master Eckhart, wrote of God as omni-nominabile and innominabile, the terminus of all acts of naming, but also that which is incapable of being named, all nameable, unnameable. Taking seriously the freedom of language, its escape from the categories of stimulus and response, or even those of descriptive accuracy and inaccuracy, begins to point us to that paradoxical Eckhartian way of characterizing actuality, infinite energy itself. And in the next lecture, I want to look a little further at the implications of language as something that never arrives at finality, at a standstill. 
Speech is essentially a time-related thing, and it refuses to work with deadlines for final representation. And in examining the issues that arise in this connection, we'll begin to make our way towards the consequent questions about language as a physical and embodied matter, which will, I hope, bring us back to some of the matters already touched on briefly in relation to the excesses of speech, our language's readiness and willingness to say more than it has to, and finally to the question of where silence belongs in all this. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Lord Williams, for that excellent uh, lecture. So we're going to have a, a break now just for two or three minutes, and then uh, we're going to have a, a Q&A period, okay? Thanks. Okay, then uh, we will begin the, uh, the Q&A. So the, what you do is uh, put your hand up very clearly, and then we have people with microphones, and they will seek you out. So who wants to go first? Here we go, this gentleman here, in the blue. Um, it's it's just, just here. Um, thank you very much for your fascinating exploration. Um, when you mentioned about the, the, that things are saying something almost invites some other interpretation to be said about whatever you said, having spent a long time talking on behalf of the Church of Scotland to the media on various technological issues, the misrepresentation of what I said then becomes a significant problem and the journalist with whom I had some interactions made me out to say something quite other than what I said. So it seems that that capacity to um, constantly reinterpret the kind of the postmodern interpretation of almost anything that any artist has ever created seems to have a destructive element to it, which kind of concerns me if that is all that it is. Yeah. Is there not something back in what was originally said that has some validity that certain ways of saying it then actually would deny? Thank you very much. That, that's a really helpful question, if I may say so. Um, I might say that I sort of recognise the experience you're describing in some, <laughs> some, some small measure. Um, and I think the, the difference between what I'm outlining here and a purely for the sake of argument, postmodernist take is, as, as I think I said at one point, one couldn't think of a truthful interpretation in this framework that wholly ignored or cut against the actual process of learning and articulation which had brought the, an initial statement to birth. That's broadening it out a bit from saying that the intention of the speaker decides everything. It doesn't but an interpretation that just cut right against everything that had brought that particular utterance at that particular moment, that would not be, in my book, a valid or defensible interpretation. So it's not simply up for anything that makes a good story, I think. Um, and that, you know, it's another case of, can we say what we like? The answer, I think, is no, because in that overall construction of... Um, 
what can be credible, defensible speaking. Some account needs to be taken of that narrative of how the, how the utterance came to be uttered. Um, more questions? Uh, that, well, there's a gentleman just behind you. Uh, Lord Williams, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, I'm a humanist, so I don't share uh, your religious outlook. And what I thought about the talk was I agreed with you right up until the last paragraph, and then you suddenly seemed to jump off onto a different story entirely. Mm. Um, did I miss something? Was there a link there that uh, went from what I would consider to be a free will analysis of how language works, which I would share completely, uh, to a theological commentary on another story which uh, I didn't uh, particularly follow. No, fair comment. I think um, because the, the last couple of paragraphs were deliberately an attempt to show not that you know, an argument would take you to that theological conclusion, but that the kind of argument about language I'd been constructing was at least congruent with some of what people say about the way in which the intelligibility of God and the intelligibility of the world belong together. So I'm not claiming there's a, a tight link, but that there is a possible fit, and that's the theme I'll be returning to a bit. As I, as I was saying last night, I'm not looking to construct knockdown arguments for God from this, but to suggest where there can be convergence between the way people talk about God and the way people talk about language, which I think suggestive, you may not. Okay, more you questions? Don't, okay. <clears throat> more questions? There's a person just there. Thanks for the talk, really enjoyed it. Um, I was just wondering, um, how well do you think we are, um, how good do you think we are at describing our internal states? Because if I sort of say something like, I went to the shop this morning, I think people can pretty easily understand what I mean. I'm talking factually. If I have a slightly more abstract or interesting thought, I sort of can struggle to articulate it sometimes. And sometimes, even if I think I've done quite a good job, I'll then stop and think, well, if someone had said those exact words to me a couple of years ago, I'd actually have sort of understood it, but taken something quite different from it. Mm. And I was just wondering, mm. like, do you, like with higher level thinking, how well do you think we really can communicate our ideas with words? Thank you very much indeed. Um, now, that, in, in a way, that's a question which runs through quite a bit of what I'm reflecting on in, in these talks. And I think the answer is, oddly, that on the whole, we don't know and are not able to describe what's going in inside until we've tried it out on a listener. Um, psychoanalysts talk about the talking cure. You don't actually know what you mean until you hear yourself saying it and saying it in this context to this person and allowing certain questions to be asked back. Yeah. And when we see people whose primary concern or primary activity is just expressing what they feel, we tend on the whole to run um, <laughs> you know, because we know that there is a style of talking about how I feel or what it's like inside which is impervious to exchange, conversation, exploration, testing once again. So you've actually given a very, very salient example of why talking is interestingly difficult. Surely, we might say, it's perfectly straightforward telling somebody what's in my mind 
But when somebody says to you, tell me what's on your mind, it's a rare person who doesn't think, oh. <laughs> I'm just like the um, utterly unhelpful proposal to be, just be yourself, which is occasionally... Why are these things difficult? Why is it hard to be myself, to speak from who I am? Why is it hard to speak about what I feel? And that sort of difficulty, which propels us into the exploration of exchange with other people, the feeding into ourselves other perspectives, the critical scrutiny of what we say in all sorts of ways, that's exactly an example of the difficulty that makes it so hard to reduce speech to something less than it really is. Thank you. So we have a question at the front here. Yes. Just, just. Um, the, when you started and, and you talked about the kind of Rortian paradox of um, the freedom that we must award to other people, it reminded me of, of the Mackinder point about emotivism. Um, that is to say that in a, if you believe in a, in a moral philosophy where there are where you get people to believe what you want them to believe, then there's no way in which you can distinguish manipulative from non-manipulative social relations. And your answer to that, because you accepted a bit, it seemed to me, of, 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 of Rorty, was actually by the way we speak and connect somehow in a serious way. But the problem with everything else about it was is that you think... It appeared to be that speech, truly understood, was the mode of connection. But couldn't you actually say that the mode of connection, you'd have to have another mode of connection so that the speech could be serious rather than, than not? And that brings me to the first questioning of, of how the bruising one gets from journalists and the bruising you get from other people is because we have institutions and connections which preclude the seriousness of the intention. I see, yes. <clears throat> yes, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I suspect there's a bit of a chicken and egg element here. Um, there are institutions that corrupt our speech. Yes, there are institutions in our society which make it increasingly impossible to speak to one another respectfully, seriously, or whatever. But presumably those institutions come partly because there's, there are prior breakdowns in trust and speech and the shared world. And that's why I wouldn't, I think, drive a wedge simply between, between the two things. I think it's perfectly true that we shan't be able to recover some kinds of honest or serious speech unless our institutions change. Equally, and this relates a bit to some of the questions that came up last night, um, unless we can also look at what we are doing to recreate other sorts of institutions of honest speech, then the macro level change doesn't, doesn't follow. But thank you, that, that's, that's a most interesting thought, which I'll store away. Thank you very much for uh, an interesting set of reflections on the attractions of complexity and the attractions of difficulty. And it's, it's very clear that one of the attractions that leads you to want to pursue questions of complexity and difficulty is precisely the moral dimensions, the sorts of responsibility that are elicited by that, which came through strongly in your reflections on Cavell on Lear or Steiner on lying, for example. 
And that is very interesting in thinking about the comparison between accounts which embrace complexity and difficulty and grapple with them, and more reductive and simplistic accounts. The account you gave was one of the deficiencies of reductive accounts and how they just don't work. And you were fairly low-key and, 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 and carefully inquiring into those deficiencies. But when people say things which are manifestly not the case or which deny complexities which we know to be there, surely we should be motivated to inquire what the, what the lure or attractiveness of reduction is. And I wonder if it's not purely the lure or attractiveness of neatness, but precisely the kind of Cavell and Steiner dimensions. There's a, almost a lure to evade responsibility and to deny the morality of our acting that might encourage people precisely to take reductive accounts. So I wonder if I could elicit some outrage from you on, on that kind of dimension. <laughs> You'd like me to, to rant a little. Well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Thank you. Um, yes, I, mean, I, I think that certain reductive accounts are not only wrong, but yes, I'd say outrageously wrong. And there is a very interesting question of what, what the lure is. I've often quoted here um, something from Wittgenstein's lectures and conversations on um, religion, aesthetics, and psychology, where he says, why, why are people so fascinated by Freud? Well, he says, Freud is charming. It is charming to destroy prejudice, he says, and to feel that you've seen through something. It's nothing but that is immensely seductive. And I think there's a good deal around in some kinds of very pseudo-scientific analysis and even some kinds of um, cognitive science and some kinds of philosophical epistemology which rest on the charm of seeing through something. Well, that, that's, that's my moral um, gravamen there, I think. I think it's, it's not just about responsibility, though that, that's an element in it. I think it's also a little bit about that immensely attractive form of power which enables you to say to someone else, you only say that because. And when I read in one sort of inept essay in this genre, consciousness is just a mistake, I think, well, I think all sorts of um, <laughs> unprintable things, but I think among other things, what kind of peculiar intellectual satisfaction is it to be able to say to some, to, not just to yourself, but to somebody else, because you can't say it to yourself, by definition, but to somebody else, you're not really conscious. Charming. Uh, there's a question at the back there. So um, this is similar to the earlier question just a moment ago. Um, I was interested in the way that you talked about language sometimes failing as if it was a failure to represent things. And I wondered to what extent or how you wanted to accommodate what I would call um, places where speaking fails or where language goes dead. The sorts of things that I have in mind are um, saying things that people don't mean, for example, playing devil's advocate, or uh, being incapable of shame, 
or uh, people who are, have lapsed into a kind of banality where they've become, let's say, intoxicated by their own speaking. I'm not sure those are cases where people are trying to use language to do things to other people always, but it is a case where language has failed us in a way that doesn't seem to be well captured by the idea that they're failing to represent things. Thank you very much. That's, um, that's intriguing. Um, and I'll need to think it through a bit, but some immediate uh, responses. Um, yes, I mean, you're quite right. The, the sort of failures of language that I, I'm mostly interested in in these lectures, if failure is the right word, are those moments where, paradoxically, language best represents by pausing or by um, riffing or, you know, all those extreme and odd things we do with our language when the available categories don't work. But you're talking about something, something else which I haven't really factored in and which I do find very, you know, very helpful to have in the discussion. Those moments where language, in, in a way, ceases to do what language does. And it's not, as you say, a failure of representation or even of description. So what is it a failure of? How does it fail? And I suppose part of the answer to that is that it, in some sense, it fails to be an act. It becomes, in some of the instances you mention, the mere reflection of what, what's become customary, speaking in cliches. In some cases, it's, I think um, being devil's advocate is a, a different case. I think that's much more like some of what I was talking about. It's the deliberate lying or you know, adopting a position you don't hold, it's definitely an act which has some representative quality. But what happens to language when, when it, it really does die on you? That's, I think, the question you're putting, and I haven't got a, a quick answer, but I'm very grateful for the, the suggestion of thinking it through further. Thank you. Okay, there's a gentleman person at the top has been very patient. Coming back to the first question and something quite early uh, in this evening's lecture, uh, when you mentioned Hegel, um, I wondered if there was a, a hint there of, and I'm going to mention Alistair McIntyre again, of whose justice, which rationality. Um, because it's, I suppose, it's one thing to acknowledge that language never gets there that we struggle continuously to get to, to get closer to what we're trying to say. But I think maybe the question that McIntyre asks, and I wondered whether you were going to join with this at some point, is how do we make any, how do we have any reason to suppose we make any progress at all? Right? That, that we, and in McIntyre's case, of course, he's talking about over centuries, not just over conversations. How do we feel, how, on what grounds are we justified in supposing that we're making any headway? Well, um, I think engaging with McIntyre at length on this would, would take rather more time than I've got this evening or indeed in these lectures. But I would, I think, qualify the skepticism about 
progress in perhaps in two ways. One is blindingly simple in a sense, and that is it's possible to tell certain cumulative stories. That's to say, it's possible to say that even if within certain systems um, there are implicit radical moral principles, it takes a while for them to be worked out, but we can see a process of working out. It took um, 17 centuries for Christianity to notice there was something problematic about slavery. It took 21 and still counting centuries for Christians to realize there was something a little bit odd about what it was saying about women a lot of the time, and so on. So we can tell stories of the emergence, the clarification, the refinement of, of a principle, the emergence into ex explicitness of something. Because of course the oddity about the slavery debate is that it was possible for people to say, we sort of knew this all along and never noticed it. And that's progress of a kind. I'm not by any means suggesting that um, the great world spins forever down the ringing grooves of change, that you know, things are getting better all the time, far from it, but that there are stories to be told of a process of making explicit in a, an ethical tradition. The other side of it is something that um, René Girard, I think, notes somewhere in his work, I wish I could remember where offhand, where he says, it's less easy to bury atrocity than it used to be. We may complain about the instantaneous character of our news culture, about the corruption of global communications, etc. But one of the things that is true in the 21st century that wasn't true in the early 20th is that it's a lot harder to pretend that certain things haven't happened. And if you look back 100 years, 150 years, it takes quite a while for atrocities to come to light in their full clarity. It's not too difficult to, to bury bad news. And these days, it's very hard. Um, and if people are gassed or shot down in the streets of Damascus, Beijing, Harare, then hmm, it's harder to ignore it. And that is progress of a kind. I think we've got time for one last question. Uh, Slade, lady at the front here. Right, right in the front. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned about the part on the experiences of difficulty, about if we can say what we like, why it's difficult to say what we want. And I just wonder, is that part of the limitation of freedom? Because I just wonder, is, is it also because our sense of internal censoring to say what we want, because based on our experience of difficulties, but also because we anticipate of diversity and therefore we come to this, what you maybe what I understand as a strategic silence or pause. If you can help me enlighten that part. Thank you. Sorry, could you just say one, one word more about, about the question? Um, just to make sure I've got it. 
Yeah, because it's it's easier to say what we like, but why is, is it difficult to say, say what, what we, we want? want. Mm -hmm. And this coming from our recognition of our limited freedom to say what we mm -hmm. want, mm -hmm. or that's caused the internal yeah. Thank you. censorship within ourselves. Mm -hmm. But also, if it's because we already anticipate the diversity yes. and also the, yes, you know, the silence. Uh, thank, uh, thank you. Thank I, you. I think I've. I've got it, because um, there's a great deal in that, in that question. Um, why is it hard to say what we want? You say partly because of an awareness of the riskiness of saying what we want to say, yes, and the diversity of perspective and the possibility of conflict. That's part of it. But I think also there's a quite proper element of recognizing that we perhaps simply don't know what we want. And if we have to get out there and say it, it's back to the question about how we describe our, our inner feelings that was asked earlier. Um, maybe if I get that out there, it'll look stupid, but it's not me after all. And one of my great um, philosophical and theological guiding stars, the late Herbert McCabe, once said that ethics is all about doing what you want. The difficult thing is finding out what it is that you actually do want. <laughs> um, it's a typically provocative statement, but I, I think I see what he means. That actually finding what you, what you want, not just what the superficial level of your desires may be at any moment, but what is the desiring direction of your, yourself. That's, that's hard work. Okay, thank you very much for all your questions. Apologies to those who didn't get a chance to ask their questions. Uh, I hope you join me in uh, thanking Lord Williams for a fascinating lecture. Thank you. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.